You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The Bible stands before the 21st century Christian as the most familiar of books and the most alien of books. Partisans of nearly any political persuasion will claim inspiration from the Bible for their own policies over against the legislative and judicial agendas of other parties, each in turn rooted in what they call the Bible. Millions of Americans claim to believe that the Bible is the inspired divine word, yet many cannot name the four Gospels. In the midst of this strange and complex cultural movement, when those who claim no religious affiliation at all still insist that they are believers as often as not, the Christian Guide to Bible Reading is a genre of books whose aims shift in this 21st century moment, even as the role of the genre remains important. Ed Szeski has recently published two such books, one, Unfollowers, a devotional of sorts focusing not on the steadfast, but on the suspicious characters in the New Testament, and the other, The Good News of Revelation, a brief guide to a frequently misunderstood book, part commentary and part spy novel, Unfollowers guides curious readers through the book of Revelation in under a hundred pages and provides them with a way of reading it that perhaps they've never encountered before. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Ed Szeski to the show. Ed, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Before we get into the books, Ed, I, I want to talk about. Uh, I guess the public, the publishing world uh, here in the age of the internet, because you're you're someone who I have followed on Twitter and on Facebook for some time, and I enjoy sort of following you. One of the interesting things about your publishing career is, unlike a lot of folks who publish Christian books, you don't collect a paycheck from a church or a college, as far as I can tell. Uh, talk to our listeners just for a couple minutes about the life of a freelance Christian book author here in the early 21st century? Yeah, well, I got into publishing while I was in seminary. I, I went to seminary to become a pastor, and about halfway through there, I, I realized that I was not cut out to be a pastor. And what I found is that I had pastoral gifts and inclinations, uh, but I also had a creative side as well that was kind of longing to come out that had been repressed for the first 25 years of my life. So... Uh, with the help of a professor and some, some other contacts I met at seminary, I started getting into publishing and wanted to use my creativity to, uh, to study the Bible and to, to give people like, a different look at, at Scripture. That's kind of the, the big overall mission is just to take stuff that's familiar uh, and, and use the things that I've been learning at seminary that maybe hadn't been accessible for the average person and, and make scripture a little bit more accessible and help people see it a little bit differently. Uh, you know, which, which means that there were, there was some credibility issues cause I don't have, uh, the numbers, you know, so it's been a very uh, numbers of, as far, I'm sorry, as a, I guess a pastor to say like, well, I, I lead a church of 2000, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I have to, I have to kind of organically reach out to people and, and make connections and, uh, you know, basically like think of my blog as my pastoring tool in a lot of ways. That's kind of how I, I've looked at it. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's working, but I, I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, like I said, I mean, I, that, that's one of the aspects of your career. You know, I've kind of been following you on Facebook and such for a few years now, and it's been interesting to kind of watch you, you know, as each new book project comes along. And, you know, uh, it, it's one of those things, you know, that I think is telling for the current state of Christian publishing is that, you know, we can actually take a look inside the lives of our writers in a way that we couldn't even 20 years ago because those social media tools and so on and so forth are out there and, you know, they are part of the game. You know, they are, you know, something that people use both to promote their books and to interact with their readers in ways that, you know, when I was in college and presumably when you were in college too, just weren't available to us. Well, I want to, yeah. I, yeah. I want to turn to uh, unfollowers here. Uh, one of the things that I like the most about this book is that you take an angle on the sort of devotional Bible guide that 
uh, a lot of folks might not have thought of before. And you take people uh, who, for one reason or another, oppose Jesus in his ministry, uh, and you use it as a sort of negative exemplar, if you will. And if you want to reframe this for me, you can. That's perfectly fine. Uh, in order for the reader to examine the self and to see if those sorts of suspicions and moments of resistance and the word that you use most often is those doubts are present. Uh, you tell a little bit of the story in the book about how this book came to be. Uh, do you want to expand on it a little bit for our listeners? How did you come up with the idea of making the Christian devotional according to Caiaphas? <laughs> right. The undevotional. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll give the big picture idea of the book and then I'll kind of go into the background a little bit. Uh, the big picture was, well, everybody at the time of Jesus knew the Bible better than we do. At least they knew the Old Testament better than we, we would. Uh, they wanted a Messiah more than we would. And yet, uh, when the Messiah shows up, they didn't want him. And so what got in the way? Like, what kept well, them They didn't want that Jesus? one. They didn't want that Messiah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, what got in the way? And then if the, uh, then the kind of the, the, the relevant question for us would be, uh, if we can see what got in the way for them, what gets in the way for us? Like, do those same things get in the way? Uh, and, and so, yes, it, the, the premise of the book is that it's a, a tool for self-examination, for confession. Uh, you know, the reviewer who reviewed it for Christianity Today Online uh, didn't like that because he, he wanted it to be all about Jesus. And so I would, you know, respond, well, it's a book that it shows us what gets in the way of Jesus, so it, it helps us confess and pray, and so it's a it's a devotional tool in that respect. Um, so you know whether people like that or not, that's up to them. But uh, the book started with uh, studying the Gospels in seminary, and I was reading about the Pharisees and how they opposed Jesus and used chapter and verse to to reject him. And so I thought, well, gosh, uh, I like using chapter and verse. Uh, that's how I think. That's how I use scripture. And so I started to really study the gospel stories from their perspective as far as what they were expecting Jesus to do, how they expected him to handle scripture, to interact with sinners and, and so forth. So I started to really see that the way that I interacted with scripture and the way that I thought Jesus would function uh, was actually more in terms of how the Pharisees you know, use scripture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I saw I just had a lot in common. So I, I said, well, if that works for them. What about all these other people? And, and so I started reading the Gospels from their perspective and, and connected with my friend Derek Cooper, who's a, a New Testament church history professor at, at Biblical Seminary, and he provided a lot of the background content for the study. Now, was Cooper one of your professors, or were you two contemporaries, or what's the story between what's the story of that collaboration, I should say? Yeah, yeah, we met during our first year of seminary together, and we became just really good friends. And uh, he taught at several different schools, but ended up getting a job at, at the same seminary that we attended at, at Biblical Seminary. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we've been close friends for years and talked for years about doing books together. So this is uh, kind of the fruition of some uh, you know, long-term scheming for us. Well, sounds good. Well, getting down a little bit closer, uh, the project of the book, uh, as we've already discussed, is to make this a sort of confessional devotion uh, where the reader is to identify with what I would say, I mean, are the sort of theological vices of these characters as opposed to the theological virtues of saints, you know, right. in a different kind of a devotional. Uh, let me ask you this. What kinds of things did you and Derek Cooper do uh, to maintain that tension between the sort of everyman feel of the book and then the very particular historical circumstances of a character like Pontius Pilate, because as you note in the book, not every one of us is in the situation of a Pontius Pilate where we are running a counterinsurgency in Palestine, you know, uh, and yet, you know, the move that you make in the book is to say that there's a little bit of Pilate in each of us. Uh, What was that process like trying to tease out the particular and then the sort of human universal yeah, I mean, it was, for me, I mean, as this is why Derek was so essential for this process. It was just really digging into these stories and the backgrounds of each character and situation and, and just seeing what made these people tick, like what made them human and what, what drove them. And so, you know, in the case of Pilate, it was all about power and control. And uh, when we start thinking about power and control and politics, um, 
you know, how do how do you uh, determine who is the most powerful person? Um, that you know, that starts to kind of you know bleed over to today, and so you know, seeing the way he he viewed power as you know the person who takes away life has power. Uh, mm-hmm. contrasted with Jesus saying the person who gives life actually has the ultimate power. And so um, that, yeah, that story then becomes, became really convicting for me for the way I think about politics and who I vote for and, and, and whatnot. So, uh, and also just, you know, um, influence, how we use our influence day to day and, and uh, do we use our influence uh, to secure our power and our position, our station in life, or are we, are we giving power away? Uh, you know, are we, are we, you know, building up others? Uh, and, and so, it, you know, there, there are, you know, there are some ways that there are connections and sometimes they're a little bit more of a stretch, but, uh, you know, I think each character, if you get down to the heart of what drove them and how they saw the world, uh, there are some connections there. One of the, yeah. se- one of the sections of the book that I found most interesting was your interaction with the Judeans. Uh, and first of all, I like the fact that you point up the fact that this is a regional term rather than an ethnic term uh, in the first century in most of its uses. I, I think that's a very, uh, I mean, I, I think it's a very helpful thing to note, especially since we are on the other side historically of one of the most gruesome moments of anti-Semitism in history. Right. Uh, but one of the things that I, I found interesting is your treatment of uh, the widow in the temple, and and this is one of those things. It's not just your book. It's also it seems like every treatment I see of the woman who puts her two coins in the temple treasury. Uh, I, I'm going to put this reading in front of you, and you can tell me where I'm wrong, or you can tell me that in the second edition of the book you're going to fix this. All right, those are your choices. <laughs> uh, but it seems to me that you know when Jesus sees the widow putting her two coins in, what he says is she has given everything. And just about every treatment I've ever seen of that says, well, Jesus is praising her generosity, uh, when in fact, before that episode and after that episode, he is just going after the temple officials left and right for exploiting precisely poor women like that. Uh, I mean, am I being too much of a Marxist here? I mean, is <laughs> am I uh, discounting too readily the generosity even in the system of forced taxation? Um, yeah, so I can, I can see, um, I mean, I think that Jesus would have had a lot of sharp words to say about the taxation system back then and the expectations, uh, placed on people, both by religious and Roman authorities. Um, I think in this passage, I'm trying to, um, you know, there's what, what I think what we were looking at too is how this played into the story of Judas, mm-hmm. and so we were probably thinking about it. what what did Judas think about this story, and so oh, how is okay. he? Speaking? Uh, so you know, so he's you know, uh, you know, Jesus is looking at this poor widow who's throwing her, you know, her coins in, and then here's this woman, you know, with all this perfume she's dumping on Jesus and like this waste, and so um, you know, Jesus is trying to make sense of like where where is this guy at. You know, <laughs> so sure, sure. Uh, so I think that, but so I think that your reading is definitely uh, an important one to consider. But I think that we were trying to recreate, and maybe maybe that just didn't come through in the book. Um, I'll blame Derek for that. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Yeah, but, I mean, now that I look at that, I mean, in the context, it is a discussion of the psychology of Judas more than about the response of Jesus there. So I, I'll, I'll take that as a a sign that I was reading my own agenda into it more than I was reading the book. So I'll apologize <laughs> for that one. Um, I do have another question though, about another uh, passage within the book. And this is when you're dealing with uh, the high priest Caiaphas. Yeah, uh, no. And I enjoyed this chapter. I like the uh, scenarios you trace out where Caiaphas is a man uh, trapped between an empire that wants to crush rebellion and then a rebel faction that wants to put a knife in anyone who's going to collaborate. And Caiaphas is right in the middle of that. Uh, first of all, I mean, if you want to, if you want to just say a few words about the character of Caiaphas that you trace out here, I mean, obviously the actual character, I mean, in the gospel of John only appears for a relatively few verses. Uh, again, what was the thought process behind constructing this backstory with Caiaphas? 
Yeah, this might be the the one chapter in the book where I've taken the most creative license, uh, just trying to imagine what what went into him. Because I think Caiaphas is kind of larger than life. Um, you know what? Actually, and this is one of the first chapters I wrote for the book. It's one of the characters that I felt most compelling uh, was most compelling for just getting into this story. Uh, you know, a good place to start with Caiaphas, I think, is Jesus Christ Superstar. I feel like. Uh, that that kind of gets at some of what was going on with the villains. I think that you know, like it's uh, the, the the songs that they sing. It, it's you know, it captures the tension and the and the way that they felt like we have to protect ourselves from the Romans and and things like that. So you know, the the central question for Caiaphas, I think, is you know, how does God save? How does God deliver us from evil? Uh, and, and so you know, for Caiaphas, he's thinking that it's really up to him. Um, he has to. He has to save God's people. And I would say, so I'm inferring, you know, based on his actions and the way he talks and the things, the choices he makes, that he has a low view of God, that he has a low view of the Holy Spirit, uh, so to speak. Uh, you know, there's no Holy Spirit proper back, you know, quite like we have Pentecost. But, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't see God interacting with the world to deliver. Uh, and I think that that shows that that, that unbelief creates a, a world where he has to be the one to take charge. And so he, he starts to kind of uh, play games with the religious system where it's like, I can't go into, into Pilate's palace because he's a Gentile. I don't want to be impure, but I'm also conspiring to murder someone, you know? So uh, it leads to this kind of double thinking where uh, when you start to rely on your own plans and your own, uh, you know, basically a lower view of God, it, it leads you to all these different areas where I think compromise becomes much more appealing. Uh, and, and you start to rely on your own resources, and, and he sees himself as the hero. I, I think we need to really see that there's like that tension between like Jesus is saving Israel, but Pilate, or, uh, Caiaphas thinks he's doing the same exact thing, but just different. Uh, you know, he thinks he's saving Israel from the Romans. Jesus is, you know, kind of redefining uh, the Messiah and salvation uh, in a new way. So I think that's kind of the central tension in, in the Caiaphas story: is what what can God do? How does God save? Yeah, and I, and I thought it was interesting, I mean, and I might have been, again, reading into your chapters more than I was reading your chapters, but it seemed to me that your Caiaphas chapter, among other things, was a commentary on a lot of 21st century Christian engagements with American partisan politics, uh, this whole ethos of, you know, we have to compromise with the agenda of pick right. your least favorite political party here and insert right. uh, in order to get done policy objectives X, Y, and Z. Uh, I mean, was that tension there in the background in the Caiaphas chapter as well, do you think? Yeah, I think we, we talked a little bit more about politics in the uh, the Herod and Pilate chapters, but mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's definitely right there as far as just uh, that mentality of, uh, you know, we we have to, you know, we have to be the, the saviors. We have to, you know, we have to act on behalf of God to somehow bring salvation um, and as opposed to the kingdom of God theology that is very much, you know, the kingdom of God is, is out there moving and we have to join it, but, um, we're not necessarily the ones, you know, bringing it to pass. Uh, we're, we're joining, we're joining God as he's doing these things. Uh, so. Right. Yeah. And moreover, it's not our duty to preserve it. Right. And I mean, that sort of shades into your revelation book. We'll get to that in a little bit, but, yeah. uh, one of the things I like about both of these books is this notion that runs all the way through that the role of the Christian is to bear witness to divine action, not to act in ways that allows God to persist in the world. Uh, you know, I mean, that that's probably my own wannabe Anabaptist, Tarawazian streak coming out there. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, I, but I see it coming through in your own books, and uh, that, that's one of the things I dig most about them. So, uh, do you, I mean... How much uh, how much of an encounter with Hauerwas have you had, if any, uh, or with Anabaptist thought more generally? Yeah, I have a lot of friends who are Anabaptists. Um, you know, Resident Aliens definitely was a big a big shake-up book for me as far as mm -hmm. my theology. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, I go, to, I go to a vineyard church now, and uh, we definitely have a lot of Kingdom of God theology. I think that, you know, our... Uh, the, the few theologians we do have in the vineyard are interacting with Hauerwas. Uh, so I think he's, you know, leaking into my thinking just through them, <laughs> you 
you know, undetected. So I'm sure there's probably more of him than I'm even aware of um, in my theology. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, let me ask you a question uh, again to step back for a moment again. Uh, one of the, and I, I'm not even sure it's a criticism of the book, but it was a an unease that I had when I finished the book, uh, is this sense that, and I sort of alluded to this at the beginning, that these characters, by the time I finished your book, had lost some of their particularity, and I started to see them as simply facets of my own personality. Uh, is there a danger there that I'm going to simply absorb all of these very particular personalities and rob them of their place in a drama that's beyond myself? if I treat them mainly as vice stories for personal reflection or how do you see that relationship between the historical and the devotional as your readers read this book? Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question because, you know, we don't want to just turn the Bible into, uh, you know, a plus B equals C moral lessons. Uh, you know, you, you want to engage the wider narrative. And that was, I think that's probably part of the tension of the book is that we tried to create, um, the chapters are pretty, probably a little too neatly divided into like historical context and then application, you know? So, um, <laughs> you know, which on, on the one hand, uh, can work well for a book. I, I think that, um, you know, you don't want to just drop people into a ton of historical context and then just leave them there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you also don't want to, um, you know, create this, this like moral framework where it's like, okay, now I've got what I need. So, um, you know, that, that is that is the tension of the book. What my hope is with the book is that uh, by interacting, so, you know, maybe I, maybe I should have been more explicit about this, but my hope was that by kind of modeling this kind of engagement with scripture, that maybe I'm giving people a way to look at the stories a little differently and, and come at them from different angles. So basically saying, like, you know, here are the unfollowers that we chose or other stories in the scriptures. We have a, an appendix in the back with them all listed out. Uh, if you want to do further study. Uh, but, you know, to encourage people to, you know, read a story from Scripture and say, okay, now, like, read it from the other guy's perspective uh, and the other woman's perspective, you know. And, and uh, you know, just just to provide different ways to engage with these stories and to, uh, you know, and, and so, like, what we're, what we're reacting against in the book is the, you know, be like a David, be like a Joshua, yeah, be like yeah, a Peter, yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, we wanted to say, you know, like, well, don't, don't assume that you're going to be like the good guys. Assume that you could be like the bad guys too. Mm-hmm. And that's so, good. uh, you know, so that's what we're trying to react against. And so it does, it does lead to perhaps maybe a little too tidy, uh, application scheme, but I, I'm hoping that at least pe- as people read the book, it'll at least be jarring enough that mm-hmm. they'll be encouraged to approach scripture with a slightly different lens maybe next time and 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 maybe it's also just encouraging to think like hey like we haven't we haven't learned everything we can from scripture maybe you know, i think that we can get a little bit weary of the gospels it's like oh i've already read these uh you know 50 times i don't need to read this anymore it's like well you know what there are other stories that maybe we've been overlooking right let me ask you this and then and this is a just a a curiosity question uh how familiar if at all are you with uh nikos kazantzakis's novel the last temptation of christ I know of it. I am not very familiar with it. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, it's one I, I, I think, having read this book, I think you would enjoy it because it, it does a lot of the same sorts of things you're doing by providing a sort of psychology for these bad guys of the New Testament. Uh, right. And, and it, takes, uh, it takes avenues that are wildly different from yours, uh, which I think would be fun for you. Uh, I mean, for so for instance, I mean, you know, it... it uh, it casts Caiaphas, I mean, first of all, as this 400-pound man, uh, but who basically does anything within his power to maintain his comfort and his ability to indulge his appetites. Mm. Uh, so, so I mean, it is the polar opposite of the Caiaphas you sketch out. Uh, but, I mean, it, that's what makes it fun, right? And then, you know, the the uh, Pontius Pilate in Kazantzakis is this sort of nihilistic... Uh, well, I mean, he he is basically an atheist in the novel, which is entirely anachronistic, I realize. But like I right. said, I think it might be fun for you. So I, that'll be my uh, book recommendation for you. Yeah. 
Well, turning the corner over to uh, the good news of Revelation, uh, one of the things that I like the most about this book is that you really do pitch it towards an audience who, like you said before about unfollowers, uh, isn't going to have a whole lot of background in the historical particulars of first century Mediterranean life, uh, isn't going to have a whole lot of background in the Roman Empire, uh, and yet it's a, a pretty brief little book. Uh, you know, it's it's like I said, I mean, it's right around a hundred pages. Uh, it sort of takes a a long view of the earlier chapters, and then you know, sort of gives some guides to reading the later chapters. One of the things I want to open up with with this one is uh, the sort of spy story that I talked about earlier in the podcast. Uh, and by the way, I have to admit, I laughed out loud when someone got clubbed over the back of the head with a rock and the scroll containing Revelation was delivered and, uh, you know, is all very, uh, I don't want to say James Bond because he's too competent, but uh, uh, it was very spy novel, I felt. Uh, what? It's a little campy. It's campy. It's yeah. fun though. I like it. What? Where did that idea come from? <laughs> um. Yeah. So here's the thing. Like, I I grew up with nightmares because of that. You know, all the crazy uh, thief in the night. You know, rapture, end of the world stuff. You know, listening to Calvary Chapel preachers. You know, in the car and stuff like that. Uh, and you know, I went to Israel and read just tons of intertestamental literature. I, I may have read all of it. I don't know. Like I, I felt like I just did nothing but read intertestamental stuff. And it was like, oh my gosh, like a bunch of this stuff is just like revelation Like you could like superimpose it and it's the same thing. Uh, so I, and I, I started to find, you know, books about this stuff. Uh, but none of it's accessible. It's all really scholarly and thick. So I went the total opposite direction. I'm going to do something really short, really like, you know, it's different and kind of campy. And, and so that's why I partnered with Larry, uh, who is a former professor of mine. And we, I felt like so much damage has been done with the Left Behind series. I don't think I can compete <laughs> with it. I don't think you can compete with the Left Behind series with like a historical fiction novel. Like I think you would probably just alienate everybody. It's like, it wouldn't be really fun to read. And it wouldn't really, you know, provide a good Bible study and it, and it wouldn't, you know, it just wouldn't do well. So I thought, well, a hybrid book that has like a little bit of short fiction and then some commentary and then a little bit of short fiction and commentary could maybe help, uh, get readers to like, uh, imagine a different story when they read revelation. So I wanted to create these little short fiction stories, your little spy novels here, uh, mm-hmm. to, to help people see like, Here's maybe a little bit of what John could have been dealing with. Here's here's what these people were going through. Here's how they may have read Revelation. And I, I recognize that it is 100% like just imagination. Uh, you know, I am I am by no means an expert. Like Larry, Larry's an expert, and he he read through them and gave it his stamp of approval. But still, it's like uh, I just wanted to to give people something to kind of shake them out of their uh, left behind series thinking. And so I thought, well, if I could just, you know, trace a couple of characters uh, and create this little series of stories, maybe that would help uh, change people's minds a little bit as far as like, oh, like this could actually make sense uh, as a series of letters written to historical churches who were suffering persecution. And uh, it Mm -hmm. says maybe a little bit about the future, but the overall purpose was to encourage suffering Christians in the historic seven churches of Asia Minor. Right, and with, without giving too many spoilers to our listeners, uh, the actual scroll of the Apocalypse of John is the MacGuffin in this spy novel. Uh, it right. is the object that has to travel from point A to point B, and various characters are you know, put in peril trying to get it from here to there. So, I, I, like I said, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, let me ask you this. I mean, your, your commentary in this book, uh, like you said, it's a very short book. I like that a great deal it tends to focus on the early chapters of the book. And then when you get to, uh, you know, roughly speaking, you know, chapters four through about 20, you get very brief with it. And then you sort of slow it down again when you get to the end. Uh, When it came to which parts of the book would get the lion's share of attention, pun intended, uh, what, what was the decision making process there? Yeah, there were a bunch of different reasons going into that. I mean, the the biggest thing was we wanted to get people familiar with the original audience of Revelation. So 
Um, yeah, if we could do anything, we just wanted people to stop thinking of the seven churches as seven church ages, uh, which is preposterous. It's just like <laughs> the most like violent thing you can do with this text is turn it into church ages. So, um, you know, well, hold we on, hold on, pause there. Church ages is that is that a common way to read them? Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, the whole like oh, ed- uh, educate me, Ed, educate me. Yeah, well, pre-tribulation rapture stuff. It, it turns the seven historic churches in Revelation into church ages. So we are we are in Laodicea, which is the one of the great apostasy and lukewarmness. And uh, you know, I've, I actually have a blog post on my my blog from yesterday where I criticize someone who uh, just published a commentary on Revelation making this case. Uh, saying the church is in uh, dramatic decline, it's weak, and it's about to, uh, you know, the final church age is about to give way to the second coming, you know, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, this is this is oh, a wow. big thing in uh, pre-tribulation rapture circles. It's, you know, so I wanted to give people some context. Uh, and, you know, Larry has, has traveled throughout the Mediterranean quite a bit, spent a lot of time over there. Uh, so he knows the geography, the history, uh, you know, he knows the text from that time. Uh, so we, that was a, a major focus was to just to, to make these churches real to people and to reconstruct their historical situation so that people can really appreciate it. Uh, and then things get general, uh, later on in the book for a number of reasons. One is just length. Um, and you know, we, we, we just didn't feel like we could give a full on commentary uh, we didn't want to get bogged down in debates over the millennium. Um, I just don't mm-hmm. care about that personally, and I just don't. I just didn't want the book to to get bogged down with that. Uh, you know, Larry and I also probably differ a little bit. I'm I'm more of a partial preterist. He's more of a futurist. So that made things a little tricky uh, as far as just how to what what to say and what not to say in later chapters. Um. You know, but yeah, like over the the biggest reason was just length. I feel like the, you know every book on Revelation that says stuff that I agree with is too long and too <laughs> academic for the average person. So I wanted to give people an on ramp. Uh, I mean, that's what I was doing with Coffeehouse Theology too. Is you know taking all this theology that was out there, talking about uh, cult, culture and theology, and making it accessible and saying like, here's your first step. If you want to do more, you know, take these next steps. So. Uh, good news of Revelation, same same principle of just trying to distill a couple of important ideas, give it to people so that they can at least, you know, see Revelation differently. And if they want to study more, they can pick up the heavier books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, a little, little side detail, and again, this is just a question of curiosity really on my part. Uh, one of the, the moves that you make early in the book is to identify John of Patmos with John the son of Zebedee from the Synoptic Gospels. Right. Uh, is that is that something that you put a lot of weight on, or was it something you just did for convenience? Uh, or, I've, again, it's one of those things where you know I've I've seen a lot of ink spilled over right. who John of Patmos is, uh, and you sort of say, well, yeah, it's the son of Zebedee. On to the next thing. Uh, right. Was that something that that uh, caused any debate in the co-authoring process, or was that pretty much something that you disposed of and moved on with? Yeah. Um... Probably more of the latter, where it was, you know, we're, we're really we're writing to change the minds of pre-tribulation rapture people, or to at least comfort people who know that the pre-tribulation rapture is wrong, but they don't know what to think, and then they can, you know, read our book and say, oh, okay, I knew I knew the rapture was wrong, but you know, now I now I have something else to believe in, or, uh, you know, I felt like the authorship debate was just a distraction from our our bigger purpose in the book. Mm-hmm. And also, frankly, for the the spy story, short you know, short fiction stuff, I thought it would be funnier to, uh, you know, to like write as this crusty old fisherman, you know, trapped in a cave. You know, I I liked that from just the creativity standpoint. So, um, you know, if anything, it made for a, a slightly more interesting story because I could at least start out with a character that people are somewhat familiar with and kind of, you know. In, you know, kind of improvised from there, so um, it, it made for better fiction too. All right, all right. Well, I, I want to give you a chance uh, without necessarily, you know, spoiling the whole book and you know, encouraging our readers not to buy it because uh, I think that folks would benefit from giving this book a read. But uh, in a few minutes, Ed, I mean, what is your general philosophy of reading the apocalypse? I mean, uh, yeah. first of all, what 
was God saying to those first century persecuted believers? And then as we 21st century folks overhear that communication going on, what is God furthermore saying to us? Right. Yeah, I think that Revelation deals with uh, kind of the big questions that we wrestle with today. It's, is God is God holy and just? Uh, and if so, why is there evil and suffering? And, and uh, you know, what, <clears throat> what's the deal? If God is... Uh, if God is God, uh, why are things so hard and why are there so many terrible things in the world? And so uh, if you take kind of a microcosm of these early churches who are suffering as like if Jesus is Lord, if he's reigning, if he's all powerful up in heaven, uh, and if he sent the spirit down to us and he's conquered everything, uh, why are we still being persecuted? And, and, you know, as Americans, I think it's really hard for us. Like we don't, we don't want to actually like, encounter this message because you know god's answer is wait (laughs) persevere Mm -hmm. hang in there and uh and then there will be justice there will be judgment and so you know and i think what john is getting at i I think that um it's not necessarily a you know blow by blow picture of uh, heaven and hell and judgment um for all of humanity necessarily uh, I, I, you know, like maybe, but I would, I would say like, this is really saying like, you know, the people who are, who are killing you right now and imprisoning you and stealing from you, like they, they will get their just comeuppance one day. Uh, mm-hmm. and reading it beyond that, I would be hesitant to say anything definitive. You know, it could, it could say something, but I think like, that's like, as far as like what I think Revelation saying, I think it's saying that, uh, and then maybe there's other things it's saying, uh, I, I, and there's also that, that kind of that promise of future restoration that God is going to restore the earth. Um, but, you know, people like, you know, read this as like, well, this is, you know, you know, describing the, the new Jerusalem and, you know, like, you know, it's like, it's a lot of symbols and metaphors, you know, hold your horses, folks, you know, kind of, you know, this is, this is literature. This is, this is, uh, and I think that, Part of the problem is that you've got a lot of different groups with really valid readings of this book who are all, uh, you know, separated from each other. So you've got the people who are like, well, this is about, you know, the downfall of empire. Uh, or other people are like, well, this is Jewish apocalyptic literature. And, uh, you know, and then you know, other people who are saying, well, this is actually a, a prayer book, you know, it's, it's for worship and devotion. I think you got to kind of blend them all together that it's like John, John is, is uh, whoever John was. Uh, he's riffing off of a form of literature popular at his time, uh, but he's kind of making his own literature at the same time. Like he's kind of just doing his own thing, um, you know. So we have to be careful how we how we read it because he is he's adopting a, a form of literature that is rich in metaphor. Uh, he is challenging the empire, uh, and he is giving the church something that I think is a a devotional tool in that it's. Um, you know, it's giving them prayers and and uh, things to meditate on that you know, uh, as far as just the supremacy of Christ and the uh, the rule of God. But you know, all, all those different elements kind of come together, I think, in a way that I don't quite understand. Uh, but we, I hope that our book kind of gave people some tools to at least start thinking along those lines when they encounter Revelation. All right. Well, I've got a theological question because, like you just alluded to, I mean, there are all sorts of theological approaches to this book i mean they range all the way from the you know the pre-tribulation camp that you just described and made me realize that i know nothing about pre-tribulation camp people because <laughs> <laughs> i you've got to be kidding me seven ages uh but i mean you've got you know those folks on one hand uh but then you've also got the people who say you know since christ is the one who wins all the battles the logical implication should be a sort of Christian pacifism. Then you've got people who say, you know, the job of the church is actually to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And that's what revelation has to say is that the actual action of Christian activism, uh, is what bring this about. Then you've got, you know, what I consider a a rather bizarre reading to be charitable that says that since Christ is coming back as a conquering, horse riding hero then therefore we ought to be macho cage fighter types 
Oh boy, I made that illusion too clear, didn't I? Uh, but I mean, you've got this very, very broad spectrum of, uh, what then should we do as a response to what we are given here in Revelation? Um, there wasn't a whole lot of that in your book, and I understand you're writing for a broad audience. Uh, I want to give you here just a couple minutes though. I mean, as far as the existence here on earth in this time between times, how do you imagine a good Christian life playing out in light of what we are given in Revelation? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, the whole passage of some conversation is very, very tricky and I, I would not base any of that on Revelation <laughs> to begin with. Uh, but yeah, so when it comes to theology, I feel like, Revelation is one of those books where um, I'm hesitant to like make any big uh, any, any big statements, you know, because it is it is a difficult book and it's it's steeped in metaphors and symbolism and imagery and and we are so far removed from it. Uh, so that's probably why I was so hesitant to say anything in the book. And you know, I want I want people to explore it uh, on their own. Uh, so yeah, I, I am very hesitant. I, I feel like. Um, you know, if anything, you know, the, the keys for me are that, you know, we, we trust God to bring justice and judgment that we, uh, that it is in our place to be, uh, judge and jury that, that, uh, it's our place to, to wait, to trust, uh, you know, and honestly, like, I don't, I think that revelation is here to say, uh, we aren't going to find very satisfying answers to the problem of evil that we're not going to be satisfied with, uh, how could Jesus be, you know, King and, uh, and still terrible things happen on earth that, um, that we have to just wait. And so, um, I I think it's, if anything, I, I find it comforting that Christians who are wrestling with these questions, uh, you know, they didn't really get, probably the definitive answers that maybe they wanted, uh, that we want. And so that's, that's probably where I, I see revelation being most helpful for us today is, is, uh, it's message to persevere, to wait, to, uh, trust God. Um, you know, that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a confusing book full of, uh, (laughs) fairly unsatisfying answers to the biggest problems and questions we have. Uh, but somehow it was intended to be enough. And so I think that's where we wrestle with it. That's where the, uh, you know, the challenges for encountering revelation. All right. All right. Well, I want to take you to task here, uh, just cause I want to push on you a little bit, see how you respond to this. Yeah. Uh, but it strikes me that for the sort of reader that's going to pick up the good news of revelation, who's going to benefit from it, someone who has been immersed in this, either, you know, pre-tribulation reading very specifically or more broadly, uh, this sort of tendency to read Revelation as a grand forecast for the 22nd century and how it's going to unfold. Uh, it seems to me that a commentary, just to pick a couple chapters out of nowhere, well, not out of nowhere, but uh, out of the middle of the book, chapters 13 and 14, the beast that rises out of the sea, the false prophet, all those sorts of things, it seems like those readers would have benefited from some verse-by-verse commentary uh, from you, from Larry. From Larry, uh, Can you still defend the, the decision not to do that commentary when it's precisely the readers that you're talking about who would benefit most from it? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's like... I don't know. We were trying to get, uh, give some big picture direction. So that, you know, this is, these are some things that this could be, these are some things that's probably not, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't know. It's, I mean, and, and let me try to phrase it a little bit differently. I mean, there are people that I've encountered, even obviously not knowing as much about pre-trib stuff as you do. Uh, who have a very definite idea of what the beast out of the sea, the false prophet, all that sort of thing is going to look like. Uh, one of the things that I've had to do when I've taught Revelation in church settings 
is to do that verse by verse crawl. And I realize this book is not a Sunday school class, uh, right. but it seems to me that that kind of work, you know, to say, okay, you might've heard this, but a more historically sensitive way to read it through the eyes of these first century believers might've been this. Uh, and I realize, you know, uh, you've already said, you know, you want to keep this brief enough that people can sit down and read it without losing the thread. Uh, right. I, I guess I'll put it to you this way. I mean, will there be a companion volume coming forth with a chapter-by-chapter commentary? Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the the challenge here for us is that, you know, we really, like, Larry and I agreed with the premise of the book as far as we wanted to give the historical background and some kind of general oversight mm-hmm. for reading the book. But then, like, when it comes to that kind of nitty-gritty verse by verse, like, I don't think we necessarily would, would agree on that. Ah, okay, um, okay. You know, so that that was part of the challenge. Like, even, like, when it came to, the, like, yeah, what is a millennium? Like, he had a section where he got into that. And, it, you know, it wasn't bad, but it was like, well, I don't know if I believe all that. Or, you know, or <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily adopt the, the, the take, you know. And, and I, I mean, I, I was kind of ambivalent about the millennium. That's probably not a good example. But you know, if, if him and I got into the nitty gritty of those verses, it would have been a lot of fancy footwork to, you know, and I think that, you know, one of my concerns is that I didn't want to cast any like doubts or clouds on his theology and his past work. I didn't want people to say, well, in this book, you said this, but in this book, you said that. And, uh, I don't know. So maybe that wouldn't be an issue, but that's, that was part of it is that it felt like for two people with, kind of a foundational agreement as far as what the book needed to be uh, to get into more of the nitty-gritty about the future particulars of Revelation. You know, like, looking back was where we had a lot of agreement. Looking forward was probably where we didn't quite see eye-to-eye as much. Not contentiously, but we just, you know, uh, the project wasn't wasn't framed in that way mm-hmm. to do that. Uh, and as we got into some of that nitty-gritty here and there, uh, I found that, that was probably where we had the most difficulty. So, um you know, so we we actually did have a couple passage, a couple sections where we got into that, and it just seemed like it was hard to represent two people two people's points of view. I felt like there was already enough uh, times where I had to insert something where it's like, well, I think this, but Larry thinks that, or when you know, some people think this, and I agree with them, but Larry thinks this other thing that people believe, and so um, you know, we we were definitely on the same page throughout the process of working on the book, but. Uh, the more specific we got, the trickier it would have become. Okay, so it would have turned into two commentaries then. I I think so. That that's what it's right. doing at a couple different points where we realized we had to cut some specific parts for the sake of just keeping it less confusing. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Ed, going back in time a few years, uh, like I've told you before, when we we've, we've communicated online, uh, I've been teaching your book coffee house theology now for about uh four semesters now uh it's now the official textbook for the uh senior capstone theology course for emmanuel college where i teach uh i appreciate that (laughs) oh yeah 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 and i and you know the other instructors have really enjoyed teaching it as well uh one of the things i'm curious about with that book and and it's it's a thread that i see running through these two books as well uh but it seems like your project in a lot of ways is to bring a very academic stance towards biblical studies, theology, church history, Christian ethics, uh, into a public market, but really where you, where I sort of see the ed coming out, if you will, uh, is your consent, your continued insistence on a very active and a very, oh, I don't even know what word to use, uh, you know, um, a very self-disclosing Holy Spirit, even in a 21st century context. Uh, if you were to characterize your own project, I mean, would you identify that as sort of your signature, or is that something that is just sort of the the terrain of your own background? Uh, where would you locate that role of the very active spirit uh, in your own theological conversations? Yeah. Uh, so I... I worked on Coffeehouse Theology a lot in 2004, and I graduated from seminary. Um, 
at basically, I was basically done seminary in, in the December of 2004. Uh, and that's when I was working on Coffeehouse Theology with John Frankie. Uh, I was kind of like an advisor for an independent study. And I wrote the book. And I had this major, major spiritual meltdown at the end of seminary. And I've heard a lot of people have had this similar experience where the Bible has been your textbook for, you know, three, four years for an MDiv. And there's just something about that that um, really drains the life out of you. And uh, I just really, I really struggled. And I married into a charismatic family. Um, and, you know, for me, that was where I found a lot of life. Uh, and so, you know, what I've found is a lot of times I wanted a, uh, you know, authoritative Bible or a system of theology to kind of function in the ways that really the spirit was promised to function. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, you know, for instance, you know, I used to be you know, really big on like, uh, you know, predestination. And so uh, that kind of becomes your fallback for a lot of things. So God willed it, God, God, you know, God predestined it, whatever uh, it was meant to be. And I, I, I have since come to a more complex understanding of the spirit where I feel like God is, God is interacting with our world through us, through the spirit that, uh, you know, so in, in everything that I write, I feel like it's really important to, uh, point people back to the role of the spirit in the Christian life. I feel like that is, you know, if you look at the book of Acts, that is the animating force behind the church. Uh, the spirit is guiding how they read scripture, how they study. And, and, uh, you know, like I always point people back to the, the council in Jerusalem where, uh, they're about to make this really big theological decision to, uh, stop requiring the Gentiles to basically become Jews, uh, in a cultural religious sense. And the first thing they say is, well, look at what the Holy Spirit did. And they say, let's look at scripture to make sure that makes sense. Good. Okay. That makes sense. So, uh, the first thing they ask is like, what is the Holy Spirit doing among us? And, uh, after that, then they, they use that to, uh, look at scripture. So when I, when I went to coffee house theology, uh, I wanted to provide a, a, um, culturally aware way to, uh, approach scripture, uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Cause I think that, uh, you know, I saw a lot of Christians either taking a very accommodating approach to culture or a, or a very combative approach to culture. And I, I wanted to take more of a dialoguing, interacting approach. And uh, where we find our, our anchor in the midst of all of that, I think, is the primary anchor uh, for me was the Holy Spirit. And so that's that's why the Holy Spirit is such a prominent place. I, I feel like that's, that's the experience of the church in Acts. And when my... You know, when the study of scripture became so just academic and dry for me, uh, I found renewal in life through the Holy Spirit. Well, good. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if I've told you or not, but uh, Emmanuel College, where I teach, is uh, affiliated with the International Pentecostal Holiness Church. So it's uh-huh. actually those passages where you start talking about the Spirit that, you know, my students kind of breathe a sigh of relief and then they say, okay, okay, he's one of us. Okay, we're all right. <laughs> so. <laughs> like I said, I mean, those are some of my favorite parts because, you know, those are those are when my students can say, okay, these, you know, questions about liberation theology and biblical criticism, it must be okay because he's still talking about the spirit. <laughs> so, right. Right. Um, <laughs> sort, sort of a, a wrap-up question, Ed. Uh, one of the things that, you know, everyone in publishing is talking about from newspapers to books to uh, digital publication is, you know, how is the nature of publication changing in the age of Google and the age of news aggregators? Uh, one of the things about a book like the good news of revelation is that, you know, probably you could cobble together this sort of material, maybe not the spy story. So you still got that going, but you could cobble together a lot of this, you know, with a few well-targeted Google searches. My hunch, though, is that there is still a vibrant need for Christian books in the 21st century. Do you share that sentiment as well? And if so, how do you see the Christian publishing industry functioning in the age of Google? Yeah, um, 
I feel like, um, you know, the amount of, of work and craft and, and thought that goes into a blog post versus a book is uh, very different. And um, I think that there is a, a difference in, in quality and, uh, you know, um, not, not to say that you can't, you know, you could really do a lot of work on a blog post and do some excellent stuff and excellent research. Uh, you know, so uh, you can do quite a lot uh, with a blog, and, and, and some people do. Um, you know, and I, I think there's a couple of different, you know, arguments. You know, for, for instance, with a book, um, I, have, I have a book coming out this summer called The Christian Survival Guide. And uh, what I did was I went through everything that's ever been a, a challenge or a threat to my faith, uh, anything that people, when I was going around talking about coffee house theology, I feel like people just, they kind of saw me as a safe person to talk to because I was interacting with just a lot of dif- difficult topics and they, they kind of dumped all their their issues and baggage about Christianity. So I, I kind of took all that and wrote this book where I go through everything that's ever been an obstacle or a challenge to my faith. And in the process of writing that, I had an editor who, you know, just just asked really great questions, did really great research, and, you know, helped uh, iron out some places where I made some mistakes. And I felt like, uh, you know, I worked really hard on that book. Uh, And then he, in the process, made it just a thousand times better. And so, uh, you know, books really benefit from that collaborative process where maybe a blog is a little bit more solitary Mm -hmm. uh, endeavor. And also just how we how we disseminate information, you know, just being able to take a book somewhere with you uh, versus a, a blog. I think that can be a little bit different. It's a different experience. It's immersive. Uh, you know, being you know in, in the grip of the narrative of a of a story of a uh, you know in the case of unfollowers, it's a it's kind of a theme, a thematic uh, book. But you kind of get into that theme and and you kind of start to you know think in a kind of a similar way. So the experience of uh, reading a book like that is very different from, say, a, a blog, which uh, I feel like my blog kind of hops around from idea to idea. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of blogs do that. So it's, it's more the sustained attention to something and, and the amount of time and development that goes into it. I think that's what uh, books can still bring to us. But I think that for people who are willing to invest the time in a blog posts, they can do really excellent work there, too. All right, good. Well, Ed, I've been in the driver's seat this whole time asking the question, so for these last couple minutes here, I want to put you in the driver's seat. Uh, you can talk about the good news of Revelation, you can talk about unfollowers, you can talk about whatever you'd like, but uh, what word would you leave our listeners with as we wrap up today? Yeah, well, I feel like um, you know, where I'm at right now, uh, You know, I've, I've been working on this uh, Christian survival guide for the past year. And one of the things that I did with this book was I basically let myself ask any question that I've ever been bothered with about Christianity. So I faced kind of all my worst fears. Um, I faced the worst fears of people who had talked to me about, you know, what's given them struggles. Uh, Pete Enns did a really great series about, uh, uh, you know, he asked his readers for like what, you know, what, has been a threat to their faith. I think it's called like, why I'm still a Christian or something like that. But, um, it was really fascinating reading that series, uh, to see that he, the people leaving comments on his blog post basically, you know, went through all the chapters in my book, they listed all those things. And so, uh, Pete's an endorser of the book, but in any case, you know, I think that there are, a, a, there's kind of a, a subset of questions that are really common among Christians, especially, uh, kind of evangelical, Christians, as my, such as myself, uh, or at least, you know, marginally liberal, post-evangelical, whatever you want to call me. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when I faced those questions and dug into them, I, I, I was really delighted to find that, that Christianity does have uh, some, some answers, some places you can go that maybe I, I hadn't considered before. Um, I think that we fear that our faith would collapse if we let ourselves ask certain questions. And, you know, the journey that I've been on, I think this is also partially with unfollowers as well, is that uh, when we face the, the things in Scripture and in, in our faith that uh, perhaps disturb us the most, that's actually where we have the greatest uh, opportunity to grow. Uh, and 
what I've found is that Jesus is always better than what I expected. You know, so if I'm afraid that he's going to like not stand up to this test or this challenge or whatever, um, there's still mystery. There's still things that don't make sense to me, but, uh, there, there is, uh, there is so much more to him, I think, than I've been able to realize. And the only, only way I was able to get there was by facing the things that I was afraid to ask. And, uh, you know, I think that he, he says, you know, peace I leave with you. Uh, Paul says, don't be afraid, you know. Uh, you know, we haven't received the spirit of fear. So, um, you know, if, if there is fear in your Christian life, uh, that is something not to run away from, but to confront. Um, and so just the process of working on this Christian survival guide, if, you know, if nobody buys this book even, like, it's helped me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, don't look at it that way, Ed. That's <laughs> We're hoping for good sales, and maybe we'll talk with you again once that one hits the presses. Oh, that'd be great, yeah. <laughs> well, listeners, this has been uh, Ed Szeski on Christian Humanist Profiles. Uh, my name is Nathan Gilmore, and I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Ed for joining us, and I want to leave you, as we do on the podcast, with the words of Martin Luther, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>